1: New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast Asia centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution For policy relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. For decades, the government of the Philippines has encouraged its citizens to seek work abroad and remit money back to the country. But it is also increasingly sought to entice Filipinos abroad to come home for tourism and retirement. A new book out with Duke University Press explores this phenomenon, traveling with Filipino Americans as they try to reimagine their lives and lifestyles in the gated communities and malls of Manila. The book is Migrant Returns, Manila Development and Transnational Connectivity, and its author, Eric J. Pido is an associate professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University. He's joining us today on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where he's speaking with me, Nick Cheeseman, a fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific and host of the channel. Eric, thank you so much for coming on to talk about migrant returns.
0: Nick, thank you so much for having me.
1: Who or what is a Balik Bayan?
0: Uh, The Balak Bayan is uh, both a social and a legal term and idea. uh, Literally, it means a person returning home, uh, in this case, returning to the homeland. These are Filipinos throughout the diaspora globally who either are temporary migrant workers, overseas Filipino workers, or permanent residents throughout the globe, especially in developed countries, countries like Canada, Australia, England, and of course the United States, who are either visiting or returning to the Philippines to live permanently.
1: And which group among the Balak Bayan is the subject of your book,
0: the Balak Bayans that I'm particularly discussing in this book is a, a specific group of balikbayan Bayans who are rarely discussed throughout scholarship, and this is permanent residents who have settled in countries uh, outside of the Philippines, who have lived for several decades in these countries, have made a living, worked, built houses, created a life for themselves, and are now returning back to the Philippines.
1: So why did you decide to write about this group?
0: It's important for me to discuss this group because this is a group of specifically educated and skilled Filipinos who had left the Philippines at different times, especially throughout the 1960s and onwards. And these particularly skilled and educated immigrants were brought to places, especially the United States, to fill specific niches and, and labor needs within the economic markets of those countries. In the United States in particular, an Immigration Act was passed called the 1965 Immigration Act. And what this act was... Intended to do was to draw immigrants primarily from Western Europe to come and entice them to come and live in the United States. Unintentionally, this created an opening for what has now completely changed the demographics of the United States so that the majority of those immigrants came from Asia and especially the Philippines. This answers one of the constant prevailing questions why are there so many Filipina nurses? living and working in the United States, especially around the West Coast or in larger cities throughout the United States, it was mainly due to this Immigration Act passed in 1965. Well, over a period of time, of course, because of different financial reasons, issues around the the recession that happened in the United States, especially in in 2000. 6 to 2008 more and more Filipinos were thinking about moving back to the Philippines because it was just untenable to relocate somewhere else either in California or Nevada or in the state of Washington and so now this desire to return back the Philippines has created a very interesting phenomenon that has been occurring in the Philippines, but hasn't been talked about very much until now, really.
1: So you talked about the 1965 Immigration Act, which drew people from Asia into the United States. But why did so many come from the Philippines specifically?
0: Well, of course, there is the colonial history and relationship between the US and the Philippines. There's always been periods of large migration and immigration into the United States between the U.S. and the Philippines because this history of colonialism had also created a very early underpinning of nursing education in the Philippines and U.S. colonials educated Filipinos in the Philippines to work very particular jobs. And these Filipinos throughout the 1900s and into the 2000s have continuously migrated But after 1965, there was a a special need for immigrants to fill particular parts of the middle economy. And Filipinos, because of what was perceived as already a knowledge of English, a facility to be able to speak English well, and also their education became the ideal sort of migrant who ended up coming into the United States and continues to.
1: Were there policies at the Philippines' end that also encouraged people to migrate in order to remit money back to the country?
0: Yes, absolutely. So much of that was kind of an informal relationship. Filipinos had always, along with letters, sent money back home ever since they began immigrating into the United States. But the previous dictator, Ferdinand Marcos, had realized that this was actually an opportunity to help develop the Philippine economy. And so starting in 1974, he created what was called the Bagbayan Program. And this program, which was initially focused on getting Filipinos to visit was a touristic economy, where he gave certain incentives for Filipinos to not only visit easily into the Philippines, but also to remit money more easily. And eventually, over a period of time, that program, which has focused on generating a touristic economy grew into a much larger and more complex economy, which is what I I wanted to write about. A
1: recurrent theme in the book is the ambivalent relationship that the Balak Bayam have to the idea of home in the Philippines. Although they're bound somehow by the idea of the Philippines as home and have economic linkages through remittances and regular contacts with their families, the idea of the Philippines as home seems to arouse anxiety among your informants. Could you talk about that aspect of the book?
0: The book is sort of trying to take on two simultaneous subjectivities, one of those being what I had alluded to earlier, which was the imagining of what the United States is and what it would be like to live in the United States, which had obviously been developed from the colonial period and continues to persist in different ways till now. There's this continual persistent sort of imaginary and compulsion to want to not just leave the Philippines and move to a different country to work and make more money, but also specifically to move to the United States. Interestingly enough, once Filipinos settle in the United States and develop a lifestyle of being American, their idea of what it was in the Philippines and to live in the Philippines comes into conflict with how difficult it is actually to make a living and to raise children and to create a life for oneself in the United States. So a lot of my interviewees and, and my, my my subjects in this text, they talk a lot about how there's this constant phrase that life was hard in the Philippines, but it was happy. It was full of joy. So there's this idea of what the Philippines is like, which is always stuck in the imagination of immigrants who move abroad. However, when they visit the Philippines periodically, which m- many, many Balikbayans do, they realize that imagination or that nostalgia, that idea of what home in their childhood was like, their young lives were like, always seems to come into conflict ...with what the Philippines has become in their minds. So there's that particular subjectivity, but that subjectivity, once arriving into the Philippines, comes into, I don't want to say conflict, but it meets the other subjectivity of the Filipinos who stayed in the Philippines. And so the Philippines Filipinos who stayed in the Philippines continue to maintain this idea of what it means to have, quote-unquote, made it in the United States... And so this disjuncture this between that meeting has created some very interesting phenomena in places like Manila.
1: What do you mean by that? Give some examples of those phenomena.
0: So one of the chapters in my book tries to talk about this ambivalent concept called uh and paranoia, which is this, this phenomenon that, that continually persists, this kind of anxiety of returning home and ideas of crime and ideas of kidnapping. And when I call it paranoia, I'm not trying to say that that's not a, a real phenomenon. I just wanted to focus on what that idea or that imagining of returning back home has produced A lot of Balakbayans will be fearful of taking the taxi, or some will go so far as to hire a driver, or maybe even a security guard, or more often just only travel with family members, even though they're back home in their country, even though uh, they speak one of the many, many dialects of their homeland provinces. They still feel this fear that if they sound American or if they appear as a foreigner, they'll be taken advantage of. What's interesting about this is that this has produced unique opportunities for Filipinos working around the tourism industry in the Philippines to kind of try to, in a way, exploit that paranoia. So another one of my ch- chapters talks about this Balayan Hotel, which is called the Mabuhay Manor in Baranyake. It's one of several hotels that are created specifically for Balakabayan returnees. And they're nothing like the Hilton or the Hyatt. They're actually constructed specifically to build around the nostalgia for Filipinos who return back. So they'll play music that played in the Philippines, maybe in the 40s or 50s. They'll serve desserts or food that are reminiscent of what Filipinos may have eaten back when they were young, but don't typically eat on a day-to-day basis now in the Philippines and all of this is constructed not only to play on that sense of nostalgia, but also to reproduce that feeling of safety and security so that Balik Bayans can feel very comfortable returning back home.
1: One feature of the imaginative labor then is this return to childhood that, as you say, companies such as that that established the Mabuhai Manor are taking advantage of. Are there other features in this imaginative labor that enable Balik Bayan to manage their anxieties and thereby somehow reconcile themselves to the return to home?
0: Well, I think the mall landscape does a lot of that work for Filipinos. So many Filipinos, when they return to the Philippines, organize their experience back in their homelands, going in between the mall and their relatives' homes or wherever they're staying. This pattern of... Only visiting the mall when they go to the Philippines it makes a lot of sense because it's not simply about being able to shop at stores that are stores that you would find in the United States or in Australia or in the UK. It's also the malls have churches, the malls have clinics, they have schools inside of them, they're, they're worlds into themselves, and so the tourism industry has found a way to align itself with the mall culture that is a materialization of this larger sort of Balikbayan economy.
1: If there is so much effort on the part of the Balikbayan to return home, why are so many of them doing it? And what kind of numbers are we talking about anyway?
0: In terms of why they're returning to the Philippines, one can't remove just how powerful the idea of returning home is for an immigrant. That idea is very, very powerful. And this book really sort of tries to wrestle with that, the centrality of that idea. When you talk to many Filipinos throughout the diaspora, they complain about what it's like in the Philippines in terms of not just safety uh, or not feeling safe, but corruption or pollution. But nonetheless, we'll go to great lengths to be able to watch Filipino television or to be able to visit Filipino markets and be able to speak the Gullahs. It's an extraordinary compulsion that this feeling of wanting maybe one day to return. And I think that is a huge reason why, in a larger sense, Filipinos... Do want to return to the Philippines. But there's also this huge ambivalent feeling about having left one's family in the Philippines. Well, that's what produces the remittance economy. This idea that I may have made it where I'm living now. I may have created a life for my children, but I still left family members who are in many ways struggling much, much more, maybe even because I left. And so that feeling of having Some scholars talk about it as a sense of betrayal. In my research and my experiences, it's not so much this feeling of betrayal, but it's certainly this feeling of fealty and uh, loyalty that one has to maintaining and sustaining a relationship with one's family members. And both of these two things are a huge reason why, depending on what figures you look at, because uh, Filipinos returning to the Philippines they do have to fill out certain paperwork in order to return as a Balak But if they choose not to fill out that paperwork and enjoy some of the benefits of having the touristic status of being a Balak they'll just continue to return. And so the formal numbers of Balak who return yearly are in the hundreds of thousands. But anecdotally, it's much larger than that. Annually, Filipinos are returning Portions of those returnees are either purchasing real estate, intending to move permanently one day, or have purchased real estate and are intermittently living in the Philippines.
1: So your reference to real estate also points to another important part of the book, and that's the role of real estate brokers. You say that scholars of urban studies have tended to overlook their role in the movements of people and investments of the sort that you studied in the Philippines. Why is that, and why do they matter for the story that you're telling?
0: To speak to the the first part of your question about why scholars have tended to not pay too much attention to the role of real estate brokers in and- cities throughout Southeast Asia or largely the global South comes from this larger intervention that I wanted to make through the book, which is that uh, scholars tend to focus on global cities or cities that are understood to be central to the larger global economy or global market. And so because of that attention, the idea of migration always creates this compulsion to emphasize what's happening in larger cities throughout the global north. The idea that immigrants would want to leave or don't uh, center their life around living in these cities throughout the global north is just not something that scholars tend to imagine or, or pay attention to. And by studying transnational real estate brokers and the real estate economies throughout these cities in the global south, what one finds is that that's not true at all. Not only do immigrants in places like Australia and Canada and the United States maintain very clear and powerful relationships with their homeland, but there is a lot of attention and energy around creating a new life in these cities throughout the global South. And so there's a huge opportunity to live maybe a lifestyle that's not as expensive, certainly a lifestyle that one is more familiar with, a lifestyle where one doesn't have to feel foreign. All of these ideas have become opportunities for real estate brokers and and more importantly, property developers to capitalize on. And so what we're finding throughout these cities, throughout the Global South, are huge, huge foreign investments in the real estate market. These property developments come in different shapes, sizes, and forms. They have different functions in the local economies, but nonetheless, they're vibrant and create a very material connection between, well, in this case, Metro Manila and
1: California. We'll pause here for a sponsors message and when we come back we'll continue to explore these Balagbayan like, anxieties, their manners of segregation, questions of modernity and a lot's more besides. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's S-E-Asia Institute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're joined by Eric Pido, author of Migrant Returns. Eric, before the break, we were talking about the anxieties that Balak Bayan have when they return to the Philippines. What kind of anxieties do the Balak Bayans have around uh, bringing their cash back from the United States? And what do they do to manage those anxieties?
0: The relationship between corruption, the idea of corruption and Balakbayans is is a complicated one and a delicate one. From my research, the idea that there's corruption affects Bayans and Filipinos living in the diaspora in in sort of ways that are obvious, but also ways that aren't often really talked about. And there's good reason for that when Bayans remit money or when they bring money back to with them to the Philippines, there's not often this sort of obvious fear or hesitancy or reluctance as long as one is remitting money through Western Union or through more official channels or one of the dozens of bulk buy services in the United States. The idea that some of the money that I send may find its way in somebody else's pockets, some of the contents of my bulk buy box might get, quote-unquote, lost. These are just realities that most Balakbayans just feel are normal. They don't feel happy about it, but it's just one of those normal inconveniences about maintaining one's relationship with the Philippines. But then there's this other delicate issue around how Balakbayans feel about poverty and corruption in the Philippines. I think ambivalence is a perfect term to describe so much of one's work and scholarship in the Philippines because it comes up so often. It's almost like a methodological framing. For example, one of the comments that I hear over and over again is, well, what was life in the Philippines when Marcos became president? Many Filipinos have a very complicated memory about that. Yes, there are Filipinos who are living here in the United States because they were forced into exile because of their politics. But a huge number of Filipinos who live in places like the United States came here because there was an economic opportunity, but not necessarily because they were fearing for their lives. In fact, many Filipinos in the United States have this idea that, you know, as long as you didn't interfere with what Marcos was trying to do. He was actually a very good president. He cleaned up the Philippines. He did very positive things in the Philippines, especially Manoa. And I completely recognize the the delicate nature of talking about this facet of out-migration from the Philippines. But I can't help but acknowledge that there's a huge number of Filipinos who, when they return to the Philippines, feel much more frustrated with the economic situation of the Philippines itself. The Bagbayan economy has become a way to to divert from that frustration and that resentment about the fact that much of the Philippines continues to be poor and struggling economically. And even though there's this acknowledgement that Corruption because of the wealthiest families and corporations who live in the Philippines, that's there. But at the same time, most Balikbians don't overtly express their resentment or frustration towards those oligarchies. It ends up being redirected onto the poor themselves. And I think that is a huge driving force for why the retirement or bulk buy landscape has produced itself the way it has.
1: Well, let's go to that landscape. How has it produced itself in the way it has? You've spent much of the book talking and writing about the selling of the American dream in the Philippines and the building of housing developments that uh, are modeled after small town America. When did all of this begin? And apart from the Beilig Bayans themselves, uh, who is backing it?
0: Most scholarship that tries to make sense of how modernity materializes itself throughout the global South has this implicit or a lot of times explicit assumption that the landscape that's being produced is intended to mirror places in the global North, especially the United States. And in a lot of ways, that's true. But at the same time, the idea of having a bungalow that you would find maybe in a suburb somewhere in middle America, isn't always possible in the the Philippines, especially in a place like Metro Manila. And so even though the language of these advertisements kindle an idea of being able to live in New Jersey or in California in the Philippines, you're still buying a condominium in a very uh, tall skyscraper in the middle of Metro Manila. And if you're not buying a condominium which is relatively small compared to 90% of the homes in the United States, you may be able to buy something in one of these much newer mega city projects outside of Metro Manila. And I think it's really these mega cities that are being built outside of Metro Manila that is the more interesting conversation. One of the books that I talk about that's been so influential to my book is Teresa Caldera's book, City of Walls. In her book about life and security in Sao Paulo, after the dictatorship, fears around crime sort of aligned itself with neoliberalism in such a way that life became much more segregated. This segregation wasn't just physical in terms of building walls or gated communities, but also one's social life. Became very segregated. So the ability to have community became much more limited because of these kinds of lifestyles. Well, these mega cities that are materializing themselves throughout many places outside of Metro Manila are kind of the hyper realization of these city of walls. They're, they are massive cities that contain everything that you can imagine that one city should have. There's hyper security and they're hyper-regulated, but at the same time, consider the fact that Filipinos are extremely communal. Filipinos, regardless of how enclosed their lifestyles are and how safe they want to be, must necessarily include family members from outside of the city of Walls, so to speak, to be able to just continue to connect. And so it would be too far to say that these cities just model any kind of community that you would find in the United States.
1: You point to the emergence of these megacities and you illustrate with one case, Eton City. I suppose someone with a long familiarity with Manila may say, well, hasn't a segregation and the walling off of communities been a longstanding feature of urbanization there? Is there something about the phenomena that you're identifying with this Balak community that is qualitatively different?
0: One of the qualitative differences that I've noticed is that historically, one of the dreams of the elite was to be able to live not just in Metro Manila, but especially in places like Quechon City. Quechon City and cities around Quechon City had always had these segregated neighborhoods that had been built by the Ayala Corporation's decades past. These were enclosed neighborhoods that, very much mirrored any sort of suburban enclave in the United States. They were spread out, they had huge lawns, they had lots of space. And it was a dream to be able to live in one of these residential neighborhoods. However, what I found is that if Bullock don't return to their home provinces, which many of them do, and even the ones who purchase property in Metro Manila, a lot of them end up deciding that. That'll be either a second home that I'll rent to or I'll buy it and resell it. What's interesting is that these mega cities are built so that they're not too far from Cavite, They're not too far from Metro Manila, but they're not in Metro Manila themselves. And so most Malik Bayans and a lot of elite Filipinos who are able to afford to live in these places, they don't want to live in the city proper anymore. There's kind of a disinvestment that's happening simultaneously with the building of condos and sky rises in, in Metro Manila. It's almost this. Begin uh, to use a, a word that's more familiar to urban site scholars: exoburbs that are being built adjacent to the urban core.
1: Another term that you use to refer to these retirement landscapes is zones of exception. What do you mean by that?
0: So zones of exception to take a term from Iowa On is the idea that there are places that are emerging more and more, especially throughout the global south, that the people who live inside of these zones aren't bound by nation state regulations or policies. And I would say that the places like Eaton City or these mega cities They're sort of the the hint of these zones of exception that materialize much of this literature. But I devoted a chapter to talk about touristic zones that are being built, not near or adjacent to Metro Manila, but completely away from city centers. And these touristic zones are multifaceted and contain all sorts of different mechanisms in order to absorb financial flows, especially medical tourism, which is becoming this other emergent economy that has aligned itself with both property development and also tourism. The Japanese and the Koreans, not just the Americans or Filipino Americans who are moving into these places aren't directly regulated by the Philippine government, but operate sort of independently outside of, or on the periphery or on the margins of the Philippine nation state. These places that are popping up in in the Bohol region or outside of Cebu or around Laowan, these sorts of places are the complete realization of these zones of exception.
1: Did you compare the findings that you have from these gated communities and zones of exception in the Philippines with other countries in the region like China and India or elsewhere in Southeast Asia?
0: In order to sort of make sense of how this phenomenon is occurring in the Philippines, I talk about in particular a place between the border of Thailand and and China. Again, these these touristic zones where wealthier Chinese citizens are able to live a a sort of different lifestyle in between Thailand and China, and how more and more these kinds of places are being constructed for the the uber-wealthy in order to experience the same sorts of things that I was talking about in these zones in the Philippines.
1: The kinds of anxieties and paranoia that you described the Balakbayan population as having as absent from that case. There's a confidence associated with this population that's moving in from mainland China in contrast to your returnees to home who feel a constant condition of insecurity about what the home means to them and what it means to be home.
0: Yes, absolutely. That's always the reluctance that I have about saying that the phenomenon or developed by an economy that's that's being produced between the United States and the Philippines is exactly mirrored, not just in places around China, but also India and Indonesia. But one has to always be attuned to and acknowledge just how unique also that the Chinese case is. I mean, the Philippines, which uh, much of its populace, maybe as much of its populace lives outside of the Philippines as it does in the Philippines. The Philippine government has chosen to maintain an identity with the Filipino diaspora that's quite different than the one that the Chinese diaspora has with the Chinese mainland itself. The Chinese mainland has always been very confident and explicit about its affinity and, and connection that it has to the Chinese diaspora was Chinese, always Chinese. And you see that materialize in these developments that we were just talking about. In many ways, the Chinese who live in places like Laos or live in places like Vietnam, they there's some, there, there isn't this sort of... Same kind of ambivalence about one's identity, about being Chinese, but also living and growing up in these countries. Whereas Filipinos who live throughout the diaspora carry kind of its own unique relationship to the Philippines itself. And so that ambivalence materializes itself into landscape.
1: Although the research for the book stopped before Duterte became president, I couldn't help but think about how the Balakbayans might experience his administration. Is he a cause for anxiety because of the manner in which he pursues enemies of the Philippine state? Or is he a cause for reassurance because he's pursuing people that are a cause for anxiety of the Balakbayans themselves?
0: In the same way that Many Filipinos living abroad and visiting and returning in the Philippines have sort of this complicated memory and and relationship to the former dictator Marcos. It's sort of similar with Duterte now. There is some assurance for many Bayans that Duterte is making the Philippines more safe. Remember that their memory of Marcos was that if you didn't do anything wrong, if you weren't breaking any laws or more importantly, getting in the way of what he was trying to do, you were completely fine. This idea, I think, maintains itself in a similar way with the current president And as much as one would want to say that there's this overarching criticality towards the violence of many of his policies, I just didn't see that with recent conversations that I had with interviewees.
1: Eric, congratulations on getting the book out. What are you working on now?
0: I don't know if it will be a book project or maybe a few chapters actually about Filipino male domestic workers who live in Hong Kong. One of the things that I wish that I could talk more about was kind of the the gendered phenomenon about migration that I didn't really get to emphasize in my text. I want to maintain this idea around economies and global economies and maybe even in some ways structural violence to sort of think about how the labor economy produces gender. And so I'm working on this project right now to make sense in different ways of how Filipino men who do domestic work in places like Hong Kong understand themselves doing, quote unquote, feminized work.
1: Well, that sounds like a fascinating topic and one that will uh, tie into a lot of really great literature from uh, other countries around the world. Eric C. Pido, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss Migrant Returns.
0: Thank you, Nick. Thank you so
1: much. And thank you to everyone for listening. If this episode was interesting for you, you might also like to check out my recent interview with Mega Armrit on Caring for Strangers, Filipino medical workers in Asia, or Ulla Berg talking with David James Gonzalez about her book, Mobile Selves, Race, Migration, and Belonging in Peru and the US. Those and thousands of other interviews are available free to you from the New Books Network via your browser or iTunes. Hey, thank us you to the boat. Monkey! Hey, thank God see you at the to hey, the boat.